This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society. And we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. Dr. William Marcus, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Great to have you, and I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed been one of the the list of people who I have followed over the last uh, three, four years over the COVID tyranny. Um, and of course, people can find you at MacusMD on Twitter. And of course, your substack, MacusMD.substack.com. Um, and I'll flag if people at the end of this, they think, actually, how can I support Dr. William? One way is not only get the free side of the substack, but also sign up for that paid, which is a couple of pounds a month. And, and that is one way of supporting your excellent work dr marcus but maybe if we can i want to discuss all things cancer and we haven't really got into this we've done uh, probably 500 shows and actually we've only touched on this i think twice um but maybe before we jump into that if i can ask you just to introduce yourself and then we'll get on to discussing the topic Certainly. I was born in uh, Czechoslovakia when it was a communist country, and uh, my family fled Czechoslovakia in 1988. Uh, we didn't know communism was going to come come down, so we fled the country. We uh, ended up in a refugee camp in Yugoslavia, United Nations refugee camp, for a year. That's where I learned English. And uh, I came to Canada in 1989. I grew up in Toronto. Um, I went to University of Toronto for my undergraduate. Um, my father teached at University of Toronto. He was a mathematician. Uh, I got a degree in immunology, a four-year degree in immunology. I didn't continue in immunology, though I ended up going to medical school uh, in Montreal at McGill University. So I did my medical training at McGill, uh, and then I did a five-year specialization in radiology and oncology in a, in a specialty called nuclear medicine, which encompasses both of those. Um, and then in my practice as a physician, I was, uh, diagnosing, uh, cancer patients and then treating cancer patients as well. So it was about a 50, 50 practice of diagnosis and treatment. Um, and so I, I've been a staff for about 13 years. I ran into some corruption in the Canadian healthcare system before COVID-19, um, you know, I had a very successful cancer treatment program. We were treating end stage cancer patients with uh, medical isotopes, with uh, radiation that you inject, uh, targeted radiation though. So uh, we had uh, radiation uh, beta emitting particles that were attached to molecules that actually delivered uh, the radiation directly to tumor cells um, and not healthy tissues. Uh, So it was a very successful program. We were attacked by the Justin Trudeau government and his uh, allies. Uh, He sabotaged my program uh, and then rebuilt is rebuilding it right now in British Columbia and Vancouver with over $300 million in federal money. Um, and we saw the Trudeau government getting into cutting-edge cancer treatments uh, for several years before the pandemic hit. And I saw that. I, I saw they were pouring, just pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into uh, new pharmaceutical facilities. They were using taxpayer money to build new facilities. Um, and, you know, cancer was one of the big ones that they were betting on. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And then we found out that they actually were pouring money also into mRNA, mRNA technology as well. You know, now we're building uh, mRNA factories in Canada. Uh, we're building one in Quebec. And I believe there's going to be another one in British Columbia. Uh, mRNA factories that are supposed to produce hundreds of millions of doses of these mRNA vaccines. So that's that's my background. Um, after my cancer treatment was sabotaged, I started uh, speaking out about corruption in the Canadian healthcare system. Um, you know, there were many attempts to silence me. Uh, right as the pandemic was starting, actually, there were attempts to silence me by the courts. Uh, I won those court decisions. So then I realized, you know, I can just speak freely. And uh, I started, you know, in 2020, uh, because I, I was I was bogged down in, in various legal proceedings, I was actually not speaking out about, you know, the lockdowns and things like that. I had a lot on my plate. But in 2021, when I saw they were pushing these toxic COVID-19 vaccines and using failed 
cancer technology, really, as a vaccine uh, with lipid nanoparticles and mRNA technology. Uh, that's when I started speaking out in mid-2021. Uh, I saw that the boosters had failed in Israel, and, and that was it. I mean, for me, that was, you know, I mean, that was game over at that point. And yet that's when the Canadian government started ramping up the push for booster shots, the push for all the children to get vaccinated uh, and, and so on. So I've been speaking out ever since. Um, I lost my Twitter account for speaking out against vaccinating kids. Um, I, was, I was censored and my Twitter account was terminated in early 2022. At the same time as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Robert Malone, Dr. Pierre Corey, you know, all these doctors who were losing their accounts for speaking out, I was one of those. Uh, and then I got my account back early this year. I started my Substack early this year, and just uh, both of those have been on fire ever since. Well, let's jump in. I had no idea you actually from Czechoslovakia, you go from one communist nation to another. But anyway, you should have picked somewhere else. <laughs> I'll let you take that up. Didn't know. Honestly, like Canada was an incredible country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in many ways, it, it, it still is. Um, but it was the land of freedom uh, for, for us and for immigrants and for people coming from uh, communist countries. Um, you know, we had three choices, actually. We had, we had Canada, U.S., and Australia. And my parents picked uh, Canada, and and you know we became Canadian citizens uh, very quickly. It was a it was a beautiful country. Let's jump into what you were seeing. I mean, when when you saw the rollout of mRNA of a new type of vaccine, you touched on you mentioned about uh, the background of that in in cancer and fighting cancer. But simply when you saw something new getting ruled out most of the public were just heard vaccine vaccine wonderful wonderful um you had a better idea of the types and the push of pfizer and moderna for a brand new technology hadn't really been proved the mrna what were your thoughts whenever the discussion was of that new technology being ruled out i was shocked actually i, I was really shocked um because, you know, you hear vaccine, you think that it's going to be sort of the, you know, the, the standard vaccines that, that we're used to. Uh, and, you know, then I heard, well, it's, it's, it's lipid nanoparticles and it's mRNA and it's experimental, of course. And I had, you know, I had run a, an experimental clinical trial uh, under Health Canada uh, for end-stage cancer patients. I mean, the, 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 that is the group of patients that you would do experimental uh, treatments for patients, cancer patients who had usually failed other treatments. You wouldn't certainly, you, you would never do an experimental treatment as a first line therapy. Um, you know, you would have a cancer patient who has failed chemotherapy, they failed radiation, they may have failed other uh, first or second line treatments. And then you would say, okay, we've got this experimental drug, let's put you on a trial and let's you know let's let's see how you do uh so the idea that uh, first of all that you would take any experimental drug and you would just give it to a healthy population to me was completely insane like that that is that is something that you just don't do in medicine um so that that i mean that was the first shocking factor the sh second shocking factor was that it was you know lipid nanoparticles and mrna uh combined um i had been aware of both of those independently. I knew about lipid nanoparticles, something that had been tinkered with, you know, especially, you know, they were looking at loading lipid nanoparticles with chemotherapy and then trying to deliver that chemotherapy in the body. Um, now, of course, the problem was how do you target, uh, you know, these lipid nanoparticles where you want them to go because you can't really control them, uh, especially if, they, if there's no targeting mechanism at all. And usually, you know, they would try to put, uh, you know, some kind of antibodies on there to maybe deliver them to certain places, but it never worked. Uh, it would be dumping, you know, chemotherapy all over the place in places you wouldn't want it. So I knew that was a failure. And then, of course, you know, mRNA technology had been a failure up to the time that the vaccines were rolled out. Uh, they'd never successfully treated anything with mRNA, um, you know, and they had tried, um, you know, for many years. And so um, I was initially, I thought, okay, well, maybe in the last few years that I hadn't been paying very close attention, maybe they figured something out with, with, you know, with the mRNA technology and the lipid nanoparticles. Maybe they figured, 
things out. You know, you know, and they started promising that the vaccine would stay in your arm. I thought, well, that's weird. Now, how 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 does that work, right? Like how, you know, how would how would it just you know stay in your arm? And it turns out it doesn't. It, that was a lie. Uh, that the vaccine, the lipid nanoparticles, they end up in the bloodstream, and they end up circulating all over the body and and depositing their contents, uh, their payload, uh, in various parts of the body where you wouldn't want this you know this vaccine and the mRNA to be. Dumping mRNA into the um, bone marrow, for example, dumping it into the heart, the ki- the liver, the kidneys, um, accumulating in the testes or ovaries, crossing the blood-brain barrier into the brain. Why would you want lipid nanoparticles with mRNA in the brain? Uh, that's complete insanity, right? It crosses the placenta in pregnant women, for example. So it turns out, you know, as, as soon as I started uh, looking into this technology, I realized that, you know, it was purely experimental. They hadn't figured out any of the problems and people were like healthy people were lining up for this, despite the fact that the risk of severe COVID in a healthy person was, um, you know, about 1%. Uh, and certainly the risk of death was way less than 1%. So it's just like none of it made sense. And yet the way the rollout happened, and um, I don't know how it, you know, I, I don't know how it transpired in the UK, but I can tell you in Canada, it was it was very aggressive and 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 they were just very pushy with it and they were like just get your one shot just get your one shot you'll get some protection we'll get to 70% uh herd immunity and um you know and so people were like okay let, let's get the herd immunity let's get this over with and then they said oh actually you have now that you got one shot you have to get two shots because it's a two shot vaccine and so just get your second shot and so people complied you know fairly willingly with those first two shots. And you, you could see it in the numbers where we have something like 84% of people took the first shot and 82% of people took the second shot. Then, of course, once they had to admit that the vaccines actually didn't work and because so they could roll out the boosters because then everyone's like, well, why do I need a booster if the first two shots worked, right? And <laughs> so then you start seeing the compliance, you know, drop off a cliff down to 50%, next shot it's 25%, next shot it's 10%. Uh, and and the, the entire time, they're hiding the adverse events, they're downplaying, they're pretending the injuries don't exist. Canada is one of these countries in the world, specifically, where vaccine injuries don't exist, they're not acknowledged. Uh, the Canadian government has admitted zero deaths from the COVID-19 vaccine, which is complete insanity, because you've got 30,000 various deaths in the United States, uh, you know, you've got deaths being admitted in other countries, and yet we're the only country that that hasn't had vaccine deaths, right? It's they are that obsessed with covering up vaccine injuries and deaths. Bob, well, in the UK, they're nearly as obsessed, but I think we have a better recording system. Uh, yes. Everyone talks about UK data, and actually, is really data it seems to be the two that often comes out that people look to and point towards. But can I mean, you've tracked the effects of the COVID vaccine um for most of the time and maybe we can start just by asking you what trends you've seen since the covid jab rollout because you know where to look the public don't necessarily know how to look and the, the difficulty is getting the information to the public um that's certainly something that we've been involved in over the last four years but what about you as a doctor what were you seeing what trends were you seeing after the jab was administered you know, I was seeing the athletes uh, collapsing uh, back in 2021. I think that was fairly obvious, um, you know, early on. Um, and so the issue of myocarditis had come up quite quite early on. The issue of blood clots had come up early on. We actually had an amazing Canadian doctor, Dr. Charles Hoff, who had, discover, you know, discovered the issue of, of the blood clots for himself and, and, and in his patients. And he started doing D-dimer, which was a blood test that tests for the, you know, the byproducts of, of blood clots. Uh, and he discovered a large percentage of his vaccinated patients uh, were developing blood clots. And then he alerts the Minister of Health. And I remember this, he alerts the Minister of Health, and then everyone comes after him. And then very shortly after, his clinic burns down, and the entire town, small town that he lived in, burnt down. Uh, it was it was it was wild. And and so uh, you know, I was aware of some of these issues quite early on. Of course, I had no idea the extent of which, um, how bad it was going to be. Um, and then I saw, you know, they 
so we had vaccine mandates and that was a game changer because what they went after is they went after the healthcare workers in Canada in August and September of 2021 and they said everyone has to be vaccinated and you have to submit proof of vaccination of at least two doses by October of 2021 or you'll be fired. Uh, that was a huge red flag for me. Again, the fact that you would be forcing an experimental vaccine on all your healthcare workers, uh, really with, with, with no idea what the long-term effects were going to be, I thought that was extremely reckless. And so we had that in Canada. It was, it was very, very aggressive. Um, and of course, you know, the vast majority of people complied. They wanted to keep their jobs. And I started noticing in December of 2021, we had a couple of very high profile cases of Canadian doctors who dropped dead after taking their booster shot. There was a 52 year old cardiologist, uh, Dr. Sohrab Luchmeriel, who was very outspoken, pro-vaccine, uh, hated anti-vaxxers, um, and was very vocal about it. And he took a booster shot and he's like a really young, healthy looking guy, takes a booster shot. Two weeks later, he dies in a sleep. And then we have another, we have a 48-year-old family doctor, a multimillionaire who was running uh, family medicine clinics all over the Toronto area, extremely successful man, 48 years old, takes a booster shot. Three days later, he's at his friend's house. He feels unwell, lies down on the couch. He dies on the couch. 48 years old, and apparently, um, you know, an autopsy showed myocarditis. And there was a TikTok video of a, of a friend who had put out the story, and it went viral uh, on Twitter. And that's when I realized, I'm like, something is very wrong here, because you've got young Canadian doctors, they go get their booster shot, and they're dropping dead a few days or a few weeks after taking their booster shot. That's when I first started alerting the public to, to these sudden deaths, um, and that was December of 2021. Um, and I realized the more I looked into the situation, the more sudden and unexplained deaths of Canadian doctors I found. And, and so really the following year, like, like a lot of 2022 for me, um, I was involved in investigating this issue of the deaths of Canadian doctors. And, and, you know, initially I had, 32 Canadian doctors that I had found, that list grew to 80. That's when the mainstream media came after me, but my material started going viral. And I started sending letters to the Canadian Medical Association. I said, listen, guys, there's something wrong here. You know, I've got 32 Canadian doctors that I have 80 Canadian doctors that then I had 132 Canadian doctors that I gave them the photos, the information, everything. These doctors, these were young, healthy pr doctors actively practicing and they started just dropping dead after taking two shots or three shots or four shots. And the response of the Canadian Medical Association, well, there was none. There was no response. And, you know, I, then they attacked me online. They, they said this is disinformation. There's no evidence in that any doctor has been harmed by these COVID vaccines. And they started deleting data from their own website um, because they had this beautiful page, uh, in memoriam page that was dedicated to you know, thousands of Canadian doctors over the years, and they wanted to recognize these doctors and their contribution and what they'd done over their lifetime, they deleted all of that from the website so that Canadians couldn't go and look up the information and start, you know, doing some numbers and realize that doctors were dropping dead in, in, in very large numbers. Um, and then I started seeing Canadian kids uh, collapsing and dropping dead suddenly. Uh, this was in in the later part of 2022. And we had a very aggressive rollout of COVID vaccines in kids. And especially the, the 12 to 19 year old category in Canada, 80% of these kids have had at least two shots. 80% of kids 12 to 19. Imagine, we, and we have no idea what the long-term effects of this are going to be. And I started seeing those kids dropping dead, high school kids. Now, of course, a lot of them were athletes. We have a lot of hockey players here. So hockey players were dropping dead. Um, and then we headed into, you know, flu season at the end of 2022, lots of kids just started dropping dead. And this was six to 12 months after their vaccination. So anyway, it did, and, and it just kind of snowballed. And it, so in early 2023, I just started really, uh, reporting, uh, all types of sudden deaths of, 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 I tried to focus on kids and young people. Uh, just to, you know, alert people to this, but you really, you really see the sudden, sudden died suddenly phenomenon across all ages. 
You see it across all ages. I want to focus on young people. And, uh, you know, and, and then I'm looking at, well, what are they dying from? The vast, you know, majority are dying from cardiac issues, myocarditis, pericarditis, sudden cardiac arrest. Then you've got a group of people that are dying from blood clots. And again, strokes in young people, which you don't expect. Pulmonary emboli, um, again, a lot of unexplained blood clots in the lungs. Uh, but then the cancer issue showed up. And the first time I saw the turbo cancer issue was in the summer of 2022 when we had three doctors drop dead at the same hospital in Ontario. Um, they had died within three days of each other. Um, and people noticed this because the second booster had just rolled out. So people thought, well, they died of the booster shot. And then the authorities came out and said, no, 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 no. They all died of cancer. Like, okay, well, that's equally suspicious <laughs> that yeah. three doctors, young doctors at the same hospital died of cancer. And I'm looking at these cancer and I'm like, lung cancer, doctor in his 40s dies of lung cancer a few months after diagnosis. And another 30-year-old doctor died of gastric cancer. And that's when I started looking into this phenomenon of these highly aggressive cancers. Um, I ran into a, a young doctor uh, student, actually a medical student, 27 years old. Who had taken his two shots, developed an extremely aggressive spinal cancer, uh, and was dead in less than six months. I spoke to his family. I got the information. They were initially told that this was curable. You know, this was not a problem. Perfectly healthy young man. All he had was two shots. And then he started complaining of back pain a few months later, ends up with this stage four, extremely rare spinal cancer, and is dead in less than six months. And these stories just continued. It just continued on and on. The more I looked, the more cancers I saw. And so really 2023 has been a year of, of just a lot of cancers, a lot of these turbo cancers. I've written now maybe 40, over 40 articles on turbo cancer on my Substack, looking at the various types, looking mm -hmm. at the various subtypes and the, and the populations these turbo cancers are arising in. It's an extremely um, controversial topic. It's the topic that I get attacked the most on. Um, really, the, 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 I can tell you on the vaccine, the three topics I get attacked the most on are stillbirths, um, the turbo cancers, and suicides. No one wants to admit that there's increased suicides in the vaccinated. Um, the stillbirths is something that the medical establishment is desperately trying to bury, and the cancers are a big one that they're also trying to deny that it exists. But now there's so much of that cancer, these aggressive cancers in the vaccinated, that other doctors are speaking out about it. Dr. Ryan Cole obviously is speaking about it. Dr. Peter McCullough is speaking about it. Um, you know, like like those of us who have our eyes open and who've who've been outside of the you know the big pharma establishment, uh, we see what's happening and we're speaking out about it. Well, I was looking just before we went on just over the last couple of weeks and Washington Post obviously had a headline, colon cancer is striking, is rising in young Americans, not clear why. Uh, the Washington po Washington Street Journal just days ago, cancer is striking more young people. Doctors are alarmed to baffle the BBC. Uh, a couple of days ago, concerns voiced over rise in mouth cancer in younger patients. The Daily Mail, mysterious rise in appendix cancer in young people. I mean, what is different now about what you're seeing than what you would have seen before. Yeah, so so it is, you know, I always say that the, the turbo cancer, it is a brand new phenomenon. It is a brand new pathophysiology uh, of cancer that behaves completely differently than anything we've seen before. Uh, so this is not missed screenings. This is not, well, you know, cancer appointments were canceled for a few months or screenings were canceled for a few months you would not see uh, the behavior of the tumors that we see now. If this was just missed screenings, you know, you, you would then have a catch-up period where you might see a little bit more cancer. And then there might be a very slight shift in the stages that you see. So people who would have been stage one, maybe they didn't get, you know, maybe they didn't get their screen or they didn't get their doctor's appointment. Well, maybe now they might be stage two, right? But those cancers would behave as we've always seen we expect breast cancer to behave a certain way or colon cancer to behave a certain way. These cancers are behaving completely differently. And what I mean by that is that they grow extremely rapidly. Um, so these tumors, they, they grow very rapidly, which means that they progress from stage one to stage three extremely quickly. 
And they're not presenting at stage one or stage two. They're presenting uh, almost always at stage four or stage three that rapidly progresses to stage four. And, and we're seeing them in younger people than we would expect. So, you know, breast cancers, obviously, you see this is something you see in women in their 50s, 60s, and so on. Well, now we're seeing lots of breast cancers of women in their 20s and 30s. And in the past, you would be like, well, okay, if, if you see one or two of these cases, which we did, you would think immediately, okay, there's a genetic issue. There's, this is a familial, uh, this might be a familial cancer uh, with a genetic defect like BRCA1. And, you know, then you might do genetic testing for other family members. But no, now you're seeing dozens of cases, young women in their 20s presenting with stage four breast cancer, not stage one, stage four. And it's metastatic and it spreads very rapidly to, to uh, it metastasizes very rapidly to multiple places. Um, colon cancers, again, in young people in their 20s, you've never seen colon cancer, young people in their 20s, unless there was some bizarre genetic, you know, issue going on. Uh, and, and even then it was extremely rare. And now I can put out articles of 40, 50 cases at a time in a very short period of time of young people in their 20s and 30s coming down with these extremely aggressive cancers. Um, the other feature is the, um, so I've, I've mentioned the rapid growth. Sometimes the tumors get very large, like larger than you would expect. And you, you see these descriptions of softball-sized tumors or cantaloupe-sized tumors or, or even watermelon-sized tumors. Like, like you, get, you, you hear these descriptions. You don't hear them from the oncologists. You hear them on these fundraising sites like GoFundMe.com where people are describing their cancers. And then they say, my oncologist has never seen anything like this. They've never seen such rapid growth. They've never seen such huge tumors. And then the big feature is that these cancers are resistant to conventional chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and even immunotherapy regimens. So because the oncologists are approaching this as cancers they've seen in the past, they're going to say, okay, well, you know, I know breast cancer stage four. I know how to deal with that. We're going to put you on this chemotherapy regimen. And it doesn't respond. You know, in most of the cases of turbo cancer, there is no response to chemotherapy and the cancer just keeps growing. And of course, the, you know, the patients are frustrated. The oncologists are frustrated. They don't know what to do. Uh, so they go, so the oncologists go through the different treatment modalities uh, as they are used to. They realize that the, these cancers are not responding. And usually then the prognosis is quite poor. Uh, and what happens, another feature, what happens, and I've seen families talk about this very often, hundreds of families, is that the oncologist will say, well, you have two years to live, you have three years to live, you know, maybe you have five years to live, and then the patient dies in a month or two. How can the oncologist be off by a factor of 10? How can the oncologist, like, like oncologists are pretty good at, um, because again, this is a numbers game, right? So, so if, if they're dealing with breast cancer, they've dealt with hundreds or thousands of cases. You know, when we look in the literature, the literature is usually based on hundreds of thousands of cases. So, you know, we know what we're dealing with. If you know the pathology cell type and you, you have the stage, you know, you can look at these survival curves and you can see, okay, well, you, you have based on, you know, your cancer at, at the stage that it's at. You know, we know that you have another two years or three years or five years to live just based on the numbers and the research that's been done in the past. And so the oncologists, when they give this prognostication, they are, they are always wrong. They are always off and not off by like a few months. They're off by, by a huge factor, like a factor of 10. And the family is not even ready. So imagine, you know, a family has been told, well, you have two, three years to live. And then the person dies a month later. Well, the family is not expecting that. Right, so it throws the entire family into turmoil. So you, you constantly see these these sudden deaths, unexpected, unexpected, unexpected. Is even when it comes to cancer, is because the oncologists have no idea what they're dealing with, and the vast majority of them, even if you confront them, that listen, this may have been from the vaccine. They don't even want to contemplate the the possibility of a link between the vaccine and these new turbo cancers. And then, of course, one of your substacks, recent one, middle of December, titled Pfizer completes 43 billion acquisition of Seekin, becomes largest um, oncology company to treat most turbo cancers caused by mRNA vaccines. Um, I, we are told, the public are told, mainstream media, pharmaceutical companies, no, there isn't any 
any rise at all. We're told there's no rise in myocarditis. We're told no rise in it. And there's no rise in cancer. This is misinformation. Uh, Pfizer spending $43 billion. Uh, I mean, tell us your your thoughts now. You know how the industry works. Uh, what were your thoughts whenever you saw that headline? Well, $43 billion is a big acquisition. This is not, you know, this is not peanuts. Usually acquisitions, you know, you know, it's a couple of billion. Yeah. Usually uh, when you talk about acquisitions, $43 billion, that's a big one. That is something that, you know, is is almost like a game changer. You know, when you're buying a game changing uh, product. And I looked into this uh, quite in depth. So, you know, this company has a few uh, cancer treatments um, on the market right now. And in total, those cancer treatments are bringing in about $2 billion in revenue a year. So Pfizer's spending $43 billion to acquire a company that's making revenue of about $2 billion a year. Mm-hmm. So financially, you're thinking, okay, how does that make sense? First of all, they're making a killing on the COVID vaccines. You know, they made close to $40 billion a year on the COVID vaccines. They made another $20 billion on Paxlovid. They made another close to $20 billion on the uh, uh, blood thinner uh, that treats blood clots, Eliquis. So why are they dishing out $43 billion to acquire a company that's barely making $2 billion, which probably doesn't even register as a blip uh, in terms of revenue uh, for Pfizer? Uh, it was a very odd acquisition, and I looked into it. And um, even in the pipeline, there's nothing earth-shattering in the pipeline in terms of the cancer treatment or the, you know, or the technology that Pfizer acquired. And, you know, I would urge people to to look at the interviews that the Pfizer CEO, Albert Burla, has done about this acquisition and the way he's talking about recently about cancer in general. They're actually um, they're actually chilling interviews. Uh, it almost makes your skin crawl because he is he's he's telling us things um, that on the surface don't make any sense. And so he's saying something like, well, one in three people are going to get cancer. And he's like, that's a fact, right? One in three people are going to get cancer. Cancer is our next big thing, even though, you know, they've had a massive success with the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, And of course, we know that they have, um, you know, probably over 100 mRNA vaccines in the pipeline, uh, things that they want to bring out in terms of the influenza mRNA vaccines, RSV mRNA vaccines, CMV uh, obviously, the cancer vaccines as well. And yet, um, he's not talking about that. He is talking about our next big thing is cancer. And everyone's, you know, one third of people are going to get cancer. It's going to affect everybody. And he says, okay, well, we're acquiring this cancer company, which is fine. And it seems like they over massively overpaid to acquire this company. And again, it's it's odd, but okay. Um, you'd say, well, you know, they have lots of money. Interestingly, they're actually issuing $31 billion of debt to acquire this company. So they're not even using their cash reserves. They're basically dumping the risk on, on, on investors who are going to be buying up this debt. Uh, but he was so confident. And, and, and the things that he was talking about to me, uh, even as an oncologist, was a huge red flag. And uh, he, he says, we're going to take this uh, company and their cancer treatment technologies, and we're going to scale up the production to levels the world has never seen before. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? So, so he's talking about scaling up production in the way that the mRNA production was scaled up to treat billions of people, right? Um, or, or, or to you know, uh, put out billions of mRNA vaccines. Well, he's going to now use the same uh, principle to scale up production of cancer treatments. Well, why would you need to do that? You know, cancer is a very steady phenomenon. Uh, you don't see huge spikes in cancer over time. You see you see very slow trends uh, maybe increasing over time, but it's very, very stable. And why would you suddenly need to scale up production of various cancer treatments like breast cancers or colon cancers or lymphomas? That's supposed to be steady over time. And he's talking about like 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 he's expecting some like nu- like World War Three, some nuclear fallout where everyone's going to get cancer, and then he's going to be you know there to profit off it. But that's exactly how he's talking about it. So it's fascinating to watch his interviews. And what does he know that the rest of us don't know? And he talks about 
like this is going to fill our our portfolio or or our our revenue stream from 2025 to 2030. He even gives us the time period where he expects this to be the the huge money maker that it's not right now. So it's a fascinating interview. He's expecting an absolute tsunami of cancers from 2025 to 2030. Wow. Tell us how you, because they talk about now one and two getting cancer, more and more people, it's separate from, from the jab and the effects of that. We've got it, rise of cancer in general lifestyle. Another, and I know on your Substack you've talked about ivermectin and cancer and how that is anti-cancer mechanisms for treatment. Uh, you talk about other uh, ways. I mean, what? how do you kind of advise people? Because it is a, a rising concern. Um, people want to not only protect themselves, but also they they look at the treatment for it and it is so aggressive um, and invasive and destructive that a lot of people are questioning that and holding off and you talk about targeted cancer um uh, medication can how do you discuss with with people who come to you generally about what do i do about can't how do you protect myself or if it does happen then what are the steps i should take well you know th- this is just the entire topic is very difficult it's very difficult because turbo cancer is something that is not a recognized side effect by any of the authorities. So when you compare it to something like myocarditis or blood clots, you know these are adverse events that are recognized. They're recognized by the FDA. Uh, you know they're recognized by Health Canada or the Australian authorities or the European authorities. They recognize that the vaccines can cause myocarditis, pericarditis. The blood clots, but but what they do is they lie about the frequency of those adverse events and they lie about the severity. So we've often been told myocarditis is mild and it's rare. In reality, it's actually common and it's severe. Um, you know, it may be as common as as one in thirty. We've 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 had two studies, one out of Thailand, one out of Switzerland, showing that one out of thirty people who've had a vaccine will have some kind of cardiac damage, um, some kind of, car- usually myocarditis, subclinical myocarditis. Yes, some of it may resolve, but we just don't know. Uh, one in 30 people are affected. Now, we've been told one in 5,000, one in 5,000, one in 10,000, when it's closer to one in 30, mm. right? So that's where the big lie is with those adverse events. With cancer, they say it cannot happen. It is not possible. It is there's no mechanism by which the mRNA can cause any kind of DNA damage and and cause cancer. And so this is the difficulty that I face is that um, I have journalists and other doctors telling me that I am making up this phenomenon, that I'm literally just making this up to I don't know make money on Twitter or something, right? Some stupidity like that. When when in reality. And not only have I, through my substacks, not only have I published hundreds and hundreds of cases of these bizarre, rapidly progressive cancers, but whenever I post on, on Twitter, for example, I have hundreds, thousands of people telling me their stories and their family members. And when you look at it, it, it there's thousands of people that are suffering from these extremely aggressive cancers that behave differently. And, and so, um, you know, that's where the that's where I run into this difficulty is that when people say, well, they go, well, well, I go into the literature and I cannot find the term turbo cancer. Well, yes, because none of any studies that even look in this direction, they're not going to get published. You know, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough and myself, we have a we have the largest autopsy series in the world paper of over 300 autopsies on sudden deaths of vaccinated people, showing that about 74 percent of those sudden deaths were directly due to the vaccine. With autopsy information, no one will publish it. They will not allow us to publish it because, you know, that would blow the whole issue of vaccine adverse events wide open. So same thing with, with the cancers. It's, it's not going to get published uh, or it might take a very, very long time. They're going to delay it as long as possible so that they could treat all these patients with their new expensive drugs and not have those people realize that it was the COVID vaccines that caused the cancer to begin with. So, so right there, uh, I run into the issue of 
um, there's complete denial of this phenomenon. So it's relegated as a total conspiracy theory, as something that's, and they literally say, even when I get fact-checked, uh, so you look at the fact-checked by Reuters or Associated Press, and you look at the community notes that are put on my posts um, on Twitter, they will literally say, this is a made-up term, a made-up phenomenon. It doesn't exist. It was made up by anti-vaxxers, right? So right there, you're already on the back foot trying to convince people that, you know, this, is e- this, this phenomenon even exists, right? Before we get into, you know, the characteristics of it and then how to deal with it, how to approach treatment and so on. So it's a difficult topic to deal with right now. Um, in terms of approaching, the problem is, is that when people come to me, by the time people come to me, it's too late, mm-hmm. right? Their loved one already has stage four. It, it, you know, it's not responding to any treatments. Then I, I give them suggestions for alternative treatments like high-dose ivermectin, like fenbendazole, for example, which is another antiparasitic. Both ivermectin and fenbendazole are antiparasitics that have proven anti-cancer properties and, and a dozen anti-cancer properties, whether it inhibits growth of cancer cells or it inhibits uh, spread of cancer cells uh, or it inhibits uh, these cancer stem cells um, that are responsible for, uh, you know, cancer recurrences and so on. Uh, there's, there's, you know, these medications have amazing anti-cancer properties that have been studied in vitro in vivo, maybe in, in, in phase one or phase two, uh, but the pharmaceutical industry will not allow big proper trials to be done. Uh, it's part, part of that reason because they don't make money from these. There's no money to be made from this. Like fenbendazole is dirt cheap. Yeah. Uh, so no one will make billions of dollars from fenbendazole. Ivermectin, I think, is off patent. And even Merck, you know, when, when people were using ivermectin to treat COVID-19, um, and, and it used to Merck used to have it under patent. Merck actually came out and said, "Oh, it doesn't work for COVID nineteen." And everyone thought, "Well, that must be true because why would they lie about their own drug, even though it's not on patent anymore? Why would they lie about their own drug?" Well, it turns out that Merck is now a partner with Moderna in new mRNA cancer vaccine that they're doing phase three trials in Australia, and they have a fifty fifty partnership to make money off new mRNA cancer vaccines. So, of course, they were going to suppress, you know, a product initially, and now they get rewarded for it a few few years later. You know, that's how that works, right? But um, so people come to me, usually it's too late. Um, and I always say, now, you can at that point, you have to try alternative treatments. Yeah. You have to try the high-dose ivermectin or fenbendazole or high-dose vitamin C infusions or high-dose melatonin or certain mushrooms that have anti-cancer properties like turkey tail mushroom, uh, certain foods that have anti-cancer properties. Um, There's green barley, for example. There's soursop fruit that has anti-cancer properties. You have to do something different uh, because you have to try something because the conventional treatments don't work and the oncologist will, will basically send you home to die. And that's the reality. That's the tragic reality of the situation is when they've exhausted their pharmaceutical options, they're not going to give you alternative options. They're going to send you home to die instead. And uh, But it's, of course, it's better before you get to that point, um, if you deal with the issue of spike protein toxicity, because this does seem to be an issue of the spike protein suppressing the immune system and actually the modified mRNA suppressing the immune system as well, and messing with the immune system, signaling, and function. I mean, the, the modifications in the mRNA vaccines won the Nobel Prize. Now, if you think about it, they won the Nobel Prize for modifying the mRNA so it lasts longer in the body, so that it can produce more spike protein, and can therefore cause more injuries and deaths. That is what the Nobel Prize was awarded for for the extent of the injuries and deaths that we're seeing from the vaccines because of the modifications, the the way they modified the mRNA. And of course, now there's the scandal of the issue of the DNA contamination of the vaccines, of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. We have DNA contamination found in all the vials from the, the way they produce the vaccines, which they take DNA plasmids, they put the spike protein, they put it in E. coli, they mass, mass grow the E. coli because they have to mass produce these vaccines. And then they're supposed to extract the DNA plasmids, 
make the, so transcribe it into the mRNA with the modified pseudouridine, and then they're supposed to get rid of all the DNA that they had started with, and they didn't. The DNA contamination is, on the, is in all the vials, and of course, then there's an SV40 promoter that's been discovered. This, that's an on- oncogenic virus, simian virus 40, that's been discovered in the Pfizer vials. That sequence is in front of the spike protein, and uh, Pfizer's never explained why they put that sequence there. Is it Could it be causing cancer? It might be. It, it turns out that um, the SV40 sequence can actually deliver the DNA into the nucleus. And we're told that is not possible, that there's no way the mRNA gets into the nucleus to be able to cause in, you know, integration and potentially cause cancer. Well, now Pfizer actually have a sequ- has a sequence that delivers the DNA right into the nucleus. Uh, and then, and of course, it interacts with tumor suppressor genes like p53. When if you n- knock that out, of course, now you're much more susceptible to cancer. So you know you you're dealing with a toxin, which is the spike protein, and I mean the mRNA itself is toxic as well, uh, that has suppressed the immune system and has made you vulnerable to develop cancer down the road. Um, you have to be proactive as a vaccinated person, you have to be proactive with your health. You have to try to detox the spike protein out of your system. I know it's not, you know, the most ideal term to use the term detox. Uh, I just use it, you know, as a, as a term to describe getting rid of as much spike protein out of your body as possible. And there's ways to do that, um, you know, before you develop the stage four cancer, right? You want to get rid of the spike protein. You want to boost your immune system and actually recover some of the immune system function that you've lost. So the way you do that, um, I would say the number one approach uh, seems to be fasting, uh, a long fast, like a three-day fast, four-day, five-day fast, where it's a water fast, so water only. And yeah, you're trying to get, you're trying to initiate this process called autophagy, where it's about 36 hours into the fast, your body kicks in this process called autophagy where it starts to destroy damaged cells and starts to remove them. These are cells that might be expressing the spike protein or immune cells that have been damaged by the spike protein or suppressed or have become non-functional. Your body actually starts to remove those. So if you do these fasts and you you do maybe one a month or maybe even two a month, um, you can actually clear a lot of this cellular damage from your body. And some people describe, vaccine-injured people describe a real significant improvement in their symptoms after they've done these long fasts, these three, four, five-day fasts. And it's something that anyone can do. You don't need any supplements. Um, it's basically free. You don't, you, you, you don't need to have money. You don't need to put you know, additional money into anything. Uh, and you can clear some of the damage, cellular damage, and you... Uh, also stimulate production of stem cells and immune system stem cells as well, where actually it starts rebuilding your immune system. So if you have T cells that have been damaged and rendered non-functional by the vaccine, your body will start producing new immune cells, you know, during this fasting process. So that's where I start. Start with that because you could do that. You could, anyone can start a three-day fast today. You just start, you set your clock to 72 hours, and you go for it, right? Uh, So that's the first step. Um, The next steps involve breaking down the spike protein or blocking the spike protein from doing damage. When you're looking at breaking down the spike protein, you're looking at enzymes like natokinase or bromelain. Natokinase is derived from fermented soybeans. Bromelain is derived from the pineapple plant. Uh, There's also serapeptase, lumbrokinase. These are enzymes that have been shown to break down the spike protein uh, anywhere in the body. Now, again, it's not, uh, it, it won't solve the problem, but it might clear out some of the spike protein from the system uh, and get rid of some of that spike protein. So Dr. Peter McCullough, for example, has a protocol that uses two of those enzymes, natokinase and bromelain, to try to break down as much of that spike protein as possible. That's the idea behind that. Uh, it also breaks down blood clots. So if you uh, have issues from the vaccine, maybe you're you're developing small blood clots, microclots. Um, you know, before you have a stroke or before you have a heart attack, you know, you could break some of those clots down, get rid of those clots as well. Then um, there's a lot of uh, nutraceuticals or supplements that will block the spike protein and maybe prevent it from doing damage. The most popular one, the most well-known one, is ivermectin. 
so that actually is known to block the spike protein and people who've been vaccine injured can get relief just by using ivermectin. Um, quercetin is another one that a lot of people like to use. Uh, but there's other ones. There, there's olive leaf, there's dandelion root, there's pine, pine needle uh, tea that people like to drink. Um, there is black seed, uh, black cumin seed, also known as nigella sativa. Uh, there's curcumin. So Dr. Peter McCullough has curcumin in his protocol, again, because it blocks blocks the spike protein and you know prevents it from doing some of the damage. So there's a lot of things that people can look into to block the spike protein. Um, and then I would advise a powerful antioxidant. Obviously, vitamin C is good, but NAC, N-acetylcysteine, is quite powerful um, for its antioxidant properties. Again, cleaning up some of that damage, uh, some of that oxidative damage caused by the spike protein. And then get your vitamin D levels up. That seems to be quite crucial in improving your immune system uh, and potentially preventing some of the cancers from arising because the higher your levels of vitamin D, the more protection people seem to have against certain cancers. So get your vitamin D levels up. And, and vitamin D, of course, is protective for COVID-19 as well. We know that most of the people who struggled with severe COVID uh, and were either hospitalized or put in intensive care units, the vast majority of them had very low vitamin D levels. Uh, so that seemed to be a big risk factor for struggling with, with, with COVID-19. Um, so, you know, those are kind of the main components. Now, of course, in terms of cancer, any, any patient who has cancer, I immediately say you have to cut all sugar from your diet. You basically have to go keto or, or close to keto as possible because cancer thrives on sugar. Um, we actually use radioactive labeled sugar to diagnose cancer. It's um, uh, with um, 18 uh, F, uh, FTG fluorodeoxyglucose. Uh, uh, we use that. We inject it. The cancer cells pick it up. They see it as glucose. They pick it up. And we use PET-CT scanning to actually diagnose and stage cancers by the way they pick up the sugar uh, because they pick up the sugar in much higher doses than, than normal body tissues. So you can actually diagnose where the tumors are based on the sugar consumption of, of, the, of the tumors. So try to cut out as much sugar out of your diet as possible. Now, one thing I was going to bring up also is obviously things like exercise. The problem with exercise, though, with these vaccines is that vigorous exercise in someone who may have subclinical myocarditis or any kind of heart damage is a risk factor for sudden, you know, cardiac arrhythmia and sudden cardiac death. So, so that, you know, there is a risk in, in, in terms of, you know, like, like a vigorous exercise where you may want to, if you've been vaccinated, you may want to get some kind of a cardiac workup to make sure that there isn't anything obvious cardiac wise that would put you at risk of, of sudden cardiac death. Well, I think it's a lot of stuff to end on and it's a positive note because I think people are often quite concerned and I've certainly, I think the first time I came across the the fasting, the 72 hour, I think was on your Twitter feed and people can uh, read the articles on some of those products you mentioned uh, on your Substack. But uh, Dr. William Marcus, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for coming along and sharing your thoughts, not only seeing the trends, but also some of those solutions that people can take. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list, donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org. Thank you for listening.